Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. I'm Sam Ashurst, I'm a writer, I'm a director, and I'm a psycho podcast person. Hi, I'm Shane Mossifin, I'm a VHS distributor, I'm a producer, and I'm also a psycho podcaster. (laughs) And uh, we're putting our psychotic skills to use this week by talking about Psycho 3. I'm very excited to talk about this film, uh, not least because Dan and I have already covered one Psycho sequel on this podcast on the second ever episode, so do go back and listen to that. But Shay and I also watched the 4K version of Psycho 2 included in this incredible box set release. The movie's as perfect as always, and it just looks so, so beautiful in this collection. We really enjoyed revisiting that film, didn't we? Oh, we sure did. It was glorious to see Dean Cundey's cinematography, to see Richard Franklin exercise his obsession with Psycho in such a beautiful restoration. It was really wonderful to see it. Really, really special. Um, All of these uh, 4K uh, inclusions on this disc really, really do feel like you're watching the film reel. Um, it's just, I love 4K so much. Uh, it's For me, it's a, a big of a leap from DVD to Blu-ray to 4K. Like So it, true. It's, yeah. it's like watching out of a window sometimes, but it's much more beautiful than what's actually happening outside of your window. Right, because what happens outside the window doesn't have that beautiful film grain. And that's what really makes 4K so special for me. You really do feel like you're watching it on a film projector. On film, yeah. but the best possible version of it. This film looks great, also sounds great. I don't often talk about extras so early in the episode, but uh, the commentary for Psycho 3, the new commentary by film critics Michael Brook and Johnny Maines, is excellent. It's one of my favourite commentaries for a while. I mean, I know I said that on Juon about the Sam Raimi and Scott Spiegel commentary, but even though this doesn't quite have the same star power, it has the same quality. It's perfect. These two guys are both as knowledgeable as each other, full of facts, both contextual and insightful. It's a really, really wonderful conversation that ties directly to what we're watching. And they're also not afraid to disagree with each other, which is really refreshing. Yeah, you felt like you were in the room with those two guys, just watching the movie and they're throwing out facts that enhance your enjoyment and give you a little bit of context outside of the film, like what was inspiring the filming of it. Like I didn't realize Blood Simple from Joel Cohen was extremely influential and you can completely see that now because They both feel like road trip movies that Mm. take place in a single location. So yeah, great, great commentary and one of the lesser facts that it points out that really kind of struck a chord with me is the fact that uh, this sequel only exists because Psycho 2 was so successful. Psycho 2 came out 23 years after the original and part 3 was just a few years later. And whereas Psycho 2 makes beautiful use of the gap of time because, you know, Norman was away getting cured in that film for that length of time. Whereas here, the third film takes place just a few months after Psycho 2, even though it was a few years later. It's actually very, very impressive that Psycho 3 is as good as it is, as it was essentially a cash-in directed by an actor who used his franchise clout to negotiate being in charge. Uh, Perkins obviously directs this one, which could have gone horribly wrong. 
but there's some stuff here that's unique to Perkins. Very, very beautiful filmmaking. The vision of the Mother Mary type person in, in the bath scene is just stunning. And what are your thoughts on Perkins making the jump from lead to director and lead? I think it was the perfect move. And I think he was the person for the job. Yeah. I watched an interview with him right after Psycho 3 came out and test audiences had just seen the film. Mm. And he was talking about getting the blessing from Hitchcock's widow. Oh, wow. And then later on, that was for Psycho uh, 2, and then for Psycho 3, he had the blessing of their child. Oh, wow. So wow, he wow. felt like he had the Hitchcock legacy behind him. Mm-hmm. But he has affinity and a familiarity with the story. He has more than probably anyone living at that time would besides Robert Block. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, yeah, it's almost like he took on the duties of the drummer and the singer. <laughs> it like, doesn't happen very often, right. but yeah, yeah, yeah. he's like the Karen Carpenter of horror <laughs> at that time. Like, because it's really hard to direct to yourself. I, I think that's better than being the Phil Collins. Or... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, debatable. <laughs> But yeah, he even called himself a fledgling, untried movie director. Right. But you wouldn't really be able to tell in watching it. But it is so distinctly of its era, and it's a different kind of slasher from Psycho and Psycho 2. It's a bit more campy, and the setups and the kills are delivered more in the way that maybe like a Jason Voorhees would deliver the kills. Right. Where they're more gory, they're more brutal, they're more 80s. Yeah, absolutely. Like one of the early deaths, maybe even, is it the first death where Fahey kicks out his girl pickup? And it's an actress who's appeared in a Friday the 13th movie. And it feels like a very Friday the 13th kill. You know, she's just had sex and she's on her own. She's been isolated. And, you know, there's even some extra nudity because she's put on her top the wrong way around. So um, very, very 80s, very, very Jason Voorhees. I, I completely agree. And in terms of Perkins as a director, I actually really noticed so much more on this watch than any of the times I've, I've seen it before. And potentially that's because I've only ever seen it on VHS and now I'm watching it on 4K. But I was really able to appreciate his work as a visual director little details like a telephone pole shadow looking like an upside down cross in the opening or jeff fahey's car having only one tail light which really kind of shines in a slow fade to black and that says so much about his character you know he's he's not responsible and you know the red light looks like a kind of warning when it fades to black it's it's a really beautiful subtle piece of directing and and yeah the way norman's smile like dances on his face the physical acting in in this film i wonder how much of an influence perkins had on fahey's performance for example and shay and i both love jeff fahey he is a, a chameleon a, an incredible actor but there's something very special about his mannerisms whether he's you know inviting someone to follow him or trying to charm someone in a bar he has ballet training right and you see it in every motion not only of his body but of his face there's a scene where he looks toward a character and away and back probably three or four times and every time he turns his head he has a different facial expression yeah and i could not figure out how he did that (laughs) Absolutely. It's incredible. Yeah, like this is a movie where people's faces 
look like they're performing dance moves that's the only way i can explain it yeah it's um, true lots of great nods to not just psycho the original but there's also vertigo in there and <laughs> i may be getting to that in my recommendations um <laughs> but yeah for a first time director to take on a challenge like this and to really really do like as good a job as you know you could ever hope very impressive yeah i can't think of a single actor in a horror franchise who in the middle of the franchise takes over and directs it. I don't think anyone has. I was trying to come up with examples. I came up with Leonard Nimoy. Right. In Star Trek. Yeah. Uh, the, was it The Voyage Home? I need to IT that. But yeah, but that's not a horror film. Or, or like first time efforts, you know, like you mentioned. Oh, Robert England directing. Yeah, uh, 976 Evil, but yeah. that's not a... But it's not part of the Nightmare on Elm Street. And that's kind of insane that like... England had the aspirations and ambitions to direct and he didn't throw a power move and say oh yeah I'll make I'll make Nightmare on Elm Street part four but I need to direct it right he right. totally could because that franchise does not exist without him in the same way that Psycho doesn't exist without Anthony Perkins it, that's absolutely true and when you think about Friday the 13th and Halloween that's a masked killer yeah. so you're not really getting that recognizable character actor yeah. on screen as much uh, but you'd mentioned Abel Ferreira directing Driller Killer right yeah yeah and it seems like a lot of directors go for a first time effort and then they hand the reins over to someone else that's it yeah like that kind of thing that's a budgetary move I did it on a little more flesh you know I played the the main character in a little more flesh and it wasn't because I had any ambitions to be a movie star it was because it was the most practical thing that I could do in that situation right and you can um, direct yourself yeah and Perkins could clearly direct himself oh my <laughs> like, god yeah absolutely but almost yeah. in one of the I don't know if it's my favorite performance but it's it's up there there are moments in this where he shows a true boyish charm there's a line where Fahey says to uh, Perkins said the spider to the fly and I've always felt that Norman Bates is the spider and just crouching and waiting and bringing in his prey yeah absolutely like he's very um you know kind of spindly like a spider yeah he is um and obviously like he in this movie kills birds so that he can taxidermy them and obviously birds eat spiders so i think there's something in that for sure there's definitely a thread there <laughs> hey <laughs> so wonderful performance i i think you're right this isn't my favorite performance by Perkins in this franchise obviously it's hard to match the original but actually for me Psycho 2 has the better performance because there's just a little bit more flavor to it a little bit more variety because there's more of a, a an arc in that movie in a way like in the original Psycho where the audience is experiencing the arc he doesn't necessarily change all too much. Like he's repressed, yeah. but he is who he is from start to finish. Yeah. yeah Whereas yeah. in Psycho 2, he goes on more of a journey. And I think that yeah. that challenge and that script is part of what got him back for that first sequel because... Definitely, yeah. yeah. Because he's really on the precipice again. Like you get the closest version to the original Norman Bates and... Uh, that you would ever in part two because he's very he's supposedly rehabilitated yeah and so you're wondering can i trust him right <laughs> the entire time yeah definitely and it's like having an animal in your lap that's very cute and cuddly but it could bite your face off at any moment like you don't quite know right can 
is it safe to love this person? Right. Is it safe to be romantic with this person? Yeah. And speaking of romance, there's a really interesting romantic plot line in Psycho 3 mm -hmm. that also goes into very deeply religious symbology, which right. is a totally new thing for the series. So what did you think about the introduction of the nun? Yeah, I mean, it's really, really interesting. I love that this film starts with the line, there is no God, which is very, very bleak and uh, very, very appropriate for Psycho, which is actually more interested in uh, psychology in the first movie it ends with that kind of monologue and then in the second film like you said he's rehabilitated and he has a really great relationship with the doctor who who helped to cure him and so this is a, a, a series that has been more interested in science than religion and of science believes <laughs> there is no god mm -hmm. um, and so it's that, a really interesting transition from the themes of the first two into this new direction and I really, really loved it. It had the potential to be kind of cheesy or go into like a weird supernatural direction. Mm -hmm. um, but just stuff like that opening sequence and that moment, that beautiful moment that Perkins just shot so superbly of the kind of hallucination vision, that blurry image that is as good a shot as anything in this franchise. Yeah, I think sprinkling in religion could have gone wrong just like Perkins directing could have gone wrong, but everything coalesced to a really special um, third movie in a franchise. I think it answers a lot of the questions at the heart of Psycho too, for me, which is a really interesting revelation. I didn't expect that to happen, mm. but I think there's a crisis of faith at the right. heart of Psycho 3, kind right. of like the Exorcist mm -hmm. series. Mm. And at first I couldn't really figure out why, but I realized oh, that yeah, yeah. Norman is kind of as godless as you can get, but in fact, he kind of cowers underneath his mother the same way that a sinner would cower right. beneath the cross. Shit. And Yeah, it's and, all about sin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so this nun's crisis of faith could be kind of paralleled with wow, yeah, the yeah. only freedom that Norman Bates ever will get, which is freedom from his mother. Mm. And like Psycho 2 leans really heavily on this, but Psycho 3 starts off right away like screaming out of the gate with an allegory of Norman's grip on sanity because this nun is like teetering on a ledge mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to happen and then like you mentioned she looks down and there's this light pole casting an upside down cross mm -hmm. and there's even another upside down cross that I had to really look for but there's mm. a cross on the building right but from the angle it wow. is an upside down cross oh, there's wow. two of them wow, wow, wow. <laughs> so like this nun is extremely repressed but when Norman is oh, Norma yeah. when Norman is playing Norma mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He is God. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's really like that's that's, that's been the missing piece in this entire series for me is is like what is going on with Norman? Because he's so charismatic and and boyishly charming, but he's so repressed and dissociated and like like the ice box keeps coming up in Psycho mm -hmm. 3. And I kept wondering why is there so much focus on this freezer? There's right. a lot of sequences of people like reaching into the freezer mm -hmm. and like trying to open the door mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, it's locked and only Norman can open it. Mm. <laughs> like it's this object that says so much about who he is. That's something actually that you pointed out when we were first watching it was that, you know, there's this ice box that's like you say, locked, hard to open. Then Norman comes along and opens it up. And that's when the killings start. When this, you know, cold, 
locked up thing opens just a little bit then yeah. all hell breaks loose and it's the character that he kills first exactly who open who is trying to open it exactly yeah. and yeah i really i've never thought about that before but this idea of norman cowering and and the sins that he's being accused of he really is kind of like an awkward priest or something like i could really see him play a character like that oh um, my god that would be amazing yeah, yeah yeah oh man what what a what a character what a performance i i love anthony perkins so much and his favorite of his own movies i'm not sure if it's psycho or psycho 2 or even psycho 3 i think it's uh, the trial uh, the Orson Welles movie that he made and, and that's not in recommendations but that's another fantastic film interestingly this wasn't his favourite of the Psycho sequels he said that part four was his favourite yeah um, and we also watched uh, part four on uh, 4K we did not as enjoyable certainly not my favourite um, <laughs> it had some interesting ideas had but some interesting ideas it but... was made for TV right yeah yeah and it takes norman to this logical extreme where you're always questioning is it safe to right. love this person and yeah is it a spoiler to say that he has a wife no i think that's in part four yeah, yeah that's... <laughs> like that's just insane <laughs> yeah it's really insane like the idea of um you know anthony perkins norman bates making bacon um <laughs> uh... yeah <laughs> He's got the butcher knife. <laughs> Slice and dice. <laughs> Just to return to Psycho 3, uh, something else that came up on the commentary, a really, really excellent commentary, um, was the fact that this was written by the same person who wrote The Fly. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I in, had never connected those dots, and that's just an amazing fact because, yeah, that movie is about science. This movie is about religion, but both are very, very cynical about love. Um, <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so, yeah, we should talk about the writing. Um, what are your thoughts on the actual script? I think the script took some of the elements of Psycho 2 and redirected the arc and took a very major plot point from the end of Psycho 2 and recontextualized it completely. Right. Right, and that's right. a major spoiler, so I won't say what it is, but... When it happened, I was like, really? <laughs> what are we supposed to believe as an audience? So there are a few things that left me with more questions than answers as far as the story arc goes. But I think that the tone of the film was very earnest and very rooted in being a genuine horror film. But sometimes I think it was inadvertently funny. <laughs> right. And that's a really interesting thing because also in this interview, Anthony Perkins noted that the audience laughed. And the interviewer pressed and said, well, how did that affect you? And he said, I loved it. I'm glad they laughed because I shot this in earnest. It isn't coming from the film to the audience. Mm. It's coming from the audience reacting to the film, wow. relieving tension. And apparently he revealed in this interview that people laughed during Psycho and it infuriated Hitchcock because oh, wow. people were laughing over dialogue right. and he was tempted to pull the reels and raise the volume at the parts that the audience Amazing. would laugh. Amazing. And Perkins was like, well, this had the same kind of reaction that Psycho did. Wow. But there are some very distinct moments of 
comedy like Dwayne Duke's guitar. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. And like the icebox antics were kind of silly. There's a part when the really gross thing happens with the icebox. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were parts that were definitely like yeah. funny, but not horror comedy. You know, this isn't like tonally confused. I will say, though, that the only other movie that Perkins directed was a horror comedy called Lucky Stiff. Right. Yeah. Oh, God. And yeah. It, it, it's not right. Psycho 3 is in no way a horror comedy, but it's campiness and sort of awkward moments sometimes taken into that realm. Lucky Stiff got it wrong, sadly, but Psycho 3 got it right. Like Dwayne Duke at one point says, well, I'm not going to stay long. And Perkins says, no one ever does. Mm -hmm. And there's a little twinkle in his eye. Oh, yeah. And that wisecrack sort of delivery is also a trope of 80s slashers. Yeah. And I saw Perkins like ebbing into that just a little bit with his performance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, Lucky Stiff, Jesus Christ, that is an insane movie. Maybe the most annoying lead character of all time. Like, Yeah, that guy was a, a voice actor. Right. I think that might have been his only on-screen performance. Every single line delivery is so cheesy and grating. And like, it's like it wants to be a Marx Brothers style comedy where every line is a gag. But it just gets so grating and annoying very quickly. I really and wanted to like it because it's yeah, a Christmas movie it's too. It's a Christmas movie <laughs> about like a family of cannibals <laughs> um, <laughs> and like a romantic comedy as well. Like yeah. it's very, very strange. I mean, you know, maybe watch it once, but just brace yourself for one of the most annoying lead characters of all time. And so, yeah, the fact that Perkins went from this to that is very insane to me yeah it's disappointing and he didn't make anything else after that i mean he doesn't speak too highly of it no exactly so um yeah and i wonder how he felt about about this movie i wonder if he was able to see it for the masterpiece it is because he did say that psycho 4 was the best uh, psycho sequel like i said before but Again, that's insane to me because that's ignoring Psycho 2. <laughs> but I wonder if he um, which felt... Which is my favourite of the whole franchise. Oh, yeah. I wonder if he felt like it wouldn't be right for him to say that that was his favourite sequel, though. Like the one that he directed. He might feel oh, yeah, like, oh, that's, that's too point. egotistical. Yeah. Or, or maybe he felt self-conscious. Who knows? But Yeah, yeah. But still, it is still ignoring Psycho 2, even if he is being humble. Like, <laughs> okay, fair enough. It's clearly the best. But anyway, I think that we should probably move on. Though I would like to mention a couple more of the extras. We've got Carnival of the Heart, which is a, a video essay by Alexandra Helen Nicholas about the kind of carnival-esque aspects of the film. And that's a really great video essay. Alexandra Helen Nicholas is always good. Yeah, and there's some really interesting interviews on here as well. There's a great one with Carter Burwell, who turned in a very unique score for this, totally uninfluenced by the first two movies. He really went his own path. And so very interesting to hear him talk about that. And then there's a very unique extra on here. It's a, a, a voice that I haven't really heard before on Blu-ray extras, but uh, there's one called Body Double, which is an archival interview with Brink Stevens, who I know you love, Shay. Oh my gosh. Uh, and she uh, was the body double for Diana 
Scarwood. What? I yeah. did not know that. Yeah. That's so cool. So, yeah, really, really fascinating extras. Very unique. And, um, yeah, I recommend checking all of them out. Great disc, great movie, and just great box set. Like, I can't sing this box set's praises any higher. These are all beautiful, beautiful restorations. So... Highest, highest recommendation. And speaking of recommendations, let's talk about what we'd recommend off the back of this movie. Ooh, good idea. Yeah, Shay, what have you got first? Well, Sam, I'd like to talk about Hellraiser 3 on the back of Psycho 3. Amazing. Both are part threes, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but they're also very different tonally from what came before them. Psycho 3 is very 80s, whereas Hellraiser 3 is very 90s very 90s to the point of even having like some cg integrated <laughs> right. into the effects right. which is a totally different move yeah, yeah. for the hellraiser series yeah yeah um but yeah they both bring catholic themes and iconography into the franchise like right. there's a lot of interesting struggle with pinhead which i really didn't see coming right i don't know yeah, if anyone yeah. saw that coming uh, both of these movies have uh, a very sleazy lead antagonist who drives the story's main conflict, right. kind of opens the gates right. of hell, yeah. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Both have a very lurid sex scene that ends with a random pickup being rejected very cruelly. Both have an investigative journalist doing their best to resolve the main conflict. They're right. in key supporting roles. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of overlap between these two movies, like mm. both Norman and Pinhead. They're both wrestling with their inner demons, so to speak, and their fractured personalities. And they both bring a distinctly grotesque and imaginative set of kills into the franchise. So if you haven't picked up Arrow's absolutely gorgeous 4K Hellraiser box set, your suffering will be legendary. <laughs> yes, amazing. Yeah, what's interesting about uh, Hellraiser 3 is it's actually not that Pinhead's wrestling with an inner demon. He's kind of wrestling with an inner angel. Um, <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, that is and, his demon. <laughs> and, you know, there are angelic moments in uh, Psycho 3. So, yeah, absolutely brilliant comparison, brilliant recommendation. And I'm going to go with a very, very obvious one. Um, I'm recommending this one mainly because of the opening and we did touch on it in the main discussion, but Vertigo, because yeah, Psycho 3 opens with a very blatant homage to Hitchcock's masterpiece, uh, which is a very ballsy move by Perkins <laughs> when you think about it. And yeah, I can't not recommend Vertigo uh, whenever I have the excuse. It's a perfect, perfect movie with a similarly unnerving tone to Psycho 3. Um, I think maybe people laughed at Vertigo as well. Certainly people absolutely fucking hated it. I don't really need to say much more about it, but if you do want to hear me bang on about Vertigo for two hours, I did discuss it on Anthony King's Cult Movies podcast way back in 2021. It's a film that I really, really, really adore. Yeah, and, and like I say, absolute props to Perkins for having the gall to open his psycho sequel with uh, the ending essentially of vertigo Incredible. oh i love vertigo i love yeah. how psychedelic it gets too yeah exactly like hitchcock's yeah. cutting loose on that one quite a bit yeah absolutely yeah. and you know maybe that was an influence on perkins approach to that hallucination scene because for sure that yeah. feels like moments in vertigo like when she steps out into the light and it's kind of shimmering. Yeah. Um, oh my God. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, um, what's your next recommendation, Shay? Well, you're mentioning Vertigo 
And it's interesting that you pulled that out from the first scene because I pulled out a different movie from that first scene. Oh, wow. That was Black Narcissus. Oh, yeah. From 1947. It's a Powell Pressburger release. And it also features a sexually repressed nun. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When a sisterhood is sent to convert a Himalayan castle into a school, a fox enters the hen house and uncorks the lust and the madness simmering beneath. Dwayne Duke would love this place. Because <laughs> yeah. this castle had a lot of debauchery and I think there was a big harem in one of the rooms right. with explicit paintings on the walls. And so these nuns come in and they have to scrub everything off and right. make it presentable to the public again. Yeah. So it's an interesting statement on colonialism in a right. way. People and coming in and erasing what's in the building to make it pure, pure puritanical. And uh, Dwayne Duke decorates his motel room like uh, it's... Uh... Oh my God, you're right. <laughs> With magazine cutouts. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So although it's a bit more on the art house side of things... Powell and Pressburger have been profoundly influential on horror as a whole, especially Powell, whose film Peeping Tom, about a serial killing photographer, came out the same year as Psycho. That's right. Yeah, Peeping Tom's kind of credited as being the film that invented the slasher genre as a whole. Yeah, and I think obviously Psycho had a lot to do with it as well. It was a big year for slashers. It really was. Yeah. So, um, yeah, fantastic, fantastic recommendation infinitely better than my insane next recommendation off the back of Psycho 3 because I'm going to recommend Wyatt Earp. Why it Earp? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you why it. Um, because Kevin Costner's 1994 Western epic contains a small but significant role for Jeff Fahey. And I love Jeff Fahey, so it was between this and The Lawnmower Man for my recommendation off the back of Psycho 3. Why not Lawnmower Man 2? Oh, because The Lawnmower Man 2 is an abomination. Um, <laughs> and I actually love Wyatt Earp. It was released six months after Tombstone, which is another amazing movie. Mm -hmm. um, but it, as a result, it totally bombed. Uh, but I really do hope someone gives it the deluxe Blu-ray treatment because it's a forgotten masterpiece with an insane cast. Maybe not the best film to sit down and double bill with Psycho 3, um, partly because it's three hours and ten minutes long, and partly because they do not connect in any other way aside from Jeff Fahey. But yeah, if you haven't seen it, Wire Up, I love it, I recommend it. I did not know this about you, <laughs> but I'm very happy to know it now. And you yeah. know what? I'll watch Wire Earp with you. Oh my God, yes, heck yeah. All right, well, yeah. speaking of watching stuff, yeah, let's move on to what we've been watching over the past couple of weeks. Yes. And because I've just waffled on about Wire Up, why don't you start? Oh, God. <clears throat> okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to talk about something that never gets talked about. I don't hear about this movie anywhere. <laughs> so I want to talk about The Blood of Heroes from oh, wow. 1989. Put it on your radar. This is a brutal and bizarre post-apocalyptic sports movie. Oh, wow. Maybe the only of its kind. And it's the only feature directed by the writer of Blade Runner, 12 Monkeys, and Unforgiven. Whoa. It takes place in the Australian outback. It stars Rutger Hauer, Vincent D'Onofrio, 
and Joan Chen in a role so fierce and so rugged, I, it blew me away. Like she's very strong, very electrifying oh, in wow. this movie. Yeah, and she's pretty young. I think it was before Twin Peaks because it came out in 89. Twin Peaks was 1990, 91. Yeah, that's right. There are players in a full contact, lethal style of rugby called jugging. <laughs> Not juggalos. No. Jugging. Jugging. Uh, yeah. These underdog players drift from camp to camp and they seek to topple the classist structure that continues to destroy their society. It's like a Mad Max sequel that never happened. Oh, wow. And it's very sweaty, dirty, and sporty. It's like, a, <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. It's an underdog sports movie with an insane amount of brutality and bikes and oh, mud wow. and sounds incredible. armor and people beating the crap out of each other. There is an animal head that's used in the game. Be warned if mm -hmm. you're sensitive to those things. It's a prop, but it's still part of the right. plot structure. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's had a domestic American Blu-ray release. Wow. Yeah, I've never heard of this movie. So yeah, yeah only seen it on tape. Super excited to check it out. Wonderful. And speaking of Twin Peaks, uh, this is a complete coincidence. We didn't plan this out. But my first recommendation is a movie that recently went onto the Criterion channel. It's played a lot of festivals, but this is the first time it's had actual distribution. It's called Lynch slash Oz. And this is a mixed bag. It's not like a wholehearted recommendation um, because it's essentially a series of video essays about Lynch's apparent obsession with The Wizard of Oz. And some are more successful than others, as you would expect with this kind of format. But at its worst, it feels like Room 237 at its worst. <laughs> but uh, at its best, it has some genuine insight and some really lovely edits that uh, really do make the case for Lynch having this lifelong obsession with The Wizard of Oz. Even the stuff that stretches credulity such as the fact that somewhere over the rainbow was mimed in The Wizard of Oz, which is why apparently Lynch has people miming to music in his movies. Um, not so sure about that, but it's still interesting mm. and fun. A lot of um, theories there, yeah, that yeah. could be maybe true. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. or, or it could be completely tenuous. But as long as you don't take this too seriously, and as long as you remember the fact that if you're not enjoying one essay, another one's right around the corner and... It is actually structured very well. There's kind of peaks and troughs. Yeah, I'm not going to say which are my highlights because maybe you will have your own highlights. But I really do recommend checking this out. Very fascinating. I was never bored, put it that way. Lynch slash Oz, a very entertaining deep dive into Lynch's work. I recommend it. That's really interesting. I like movies that point out patterns and similarities and whether or yeah. not it's true. It, it gets your brain going and... You can start to think about his body of work in a totally different way, whether or not you're on board with their theory. It, exactly. Like even Room 237, when I say that it's worst, it's like that film at its worst. There are elements to Room 237 that I absolutely love, like the the, the shining forwards and backwards, that moment. Yeah, that, that was so cool. Yeah. So fucking cool. So there are similar moments in Lynch Oz to that where they'll put something next to something else and you'll be like, oh, holy fuck. Yeah. How did I not see oh, that? that's nuts. Yeah. Yeah, that's exciting. Or when people would say that you could play Snow White and the Seven Dwarves next door to Suspiria and that right. they would line up. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, is it coincidence yeah. or does it really line up? I'd like to see that someday. And, and the same with Dark Side of the Moon and with 
to the vaults, obviously. Yeah, and, right. And actually, Panos Cosmatos, when I interviewed him, I think the second or third time, told me that there is a song that lines up perfectly with, I think, the last 10 or 15 minutes of Mandy. And he said, I, I'm not going to reveal what it is, but if I change my mind and decide to, you're going to be the person I tell. So... Hopefully I'll get that phone call sometime soon because I'd really wow. love to know what song lines up with Mandy. It's 15 um, minutes long. I, I think I, I, I need to go back and check my notes. It's but... probably King Crimson. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's my guess. Oh, nice. Well, um, we'll solve that mystery another day. Um, <laughs> but the next mystery is what's next from Shay? Well, I'll solve that mystery right now. <laughs> <laughs> The movie I have to recommend, it's called White of the Eye from 1987. Oh, nice. Directed by Donald Camel, who directed Performance with Mick Jagger. And this one plays like a sleazy thriller book that you'd pick up from a truck stop. And <laughs> I promise you, you won't want to put it down. It stars a very charismatic David Keith and a possessed Kathy Moriarty. And it feels like a true American giallo in the style of De Palma at times. Right. Yeah, but yeah. with the brutality of something like Tenebrae, you know, it's, yeah. it's kind, it has that giallo flavor, but it's not an honest to goodness. Like there isn't like a killer with black gloves per se stalking someone throughout the film, but it has that brutality and that mystery all the way through it. Yeah. And it's set in rural Arizona. Strangely enough, it was filmed in the town that I grew up in. Oh, no way. Yeah. And it was made around the same time as Midnight Run in oh, the same wow. location. And I yeah, remember yeah. there being two movies filmed there. And for the longest time, I couldn't figure out what the second movie was. Turns out it's this. Incredible. Because there's a scene with snow. And it never snows in Arizona. And I remember the year that it snowed. And I was about seven years old. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it, it was all filmed in my little tiny hometown in Arizona. And it was released on Canon. And although it's not the weirdest movie that Canon ever released, I think Tough Guys Don't Dance might take the case for that. But it's... Oh, man. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, God. 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 It's one of their most unique. It meanders around a little. There is some lack of structure, but... It is grounded by its sense of place, and it's a combination of genre. You know, there's a giallo influence, but there's also thriller, there's horror, there's melodrama, there's tortured romance. Right. It has everything you'd want from a trashy novel from a truck stop. <laughs> yeah, that uh, a serial killer has uh, written their diary in the margins. In the margins, yeah, exactly. There's excellent sound design. David Keith plays a sound producer mm -hmm. and there's a very controlled chaos in Kathy Moriarty's performance oh, like yeah. you can feel her just able to go off the chain yeah unhinged at yes. any moment she's yeah, yeah. very good and despite its meandering flow it delivers some really gorgeous shots and it has an absolutely batshit ending yeah I think Arrow put it out in the UK but that's right not in the States that's right yeah yeah so uh maybe we'll do a future episode on it who Ooh. knows yeah yeah cool um, but uh, something that is not on Arrow uh, and definitely should be, perhaps in one of their kind of noir box sets. It's uh, a movie that I watched on the Criterion channel uh, called The Hidden Room. It's otherwise known as Obsession. It's from 1949. 
and it's a really unique noir. It feels more like proto-torture porn, of all things, uh, starring Robert Newton as a British psychiatrist who decides to commit the perfect murder when he discovers his wife's having an affair with an American. And his plan involves kidnapping the Yank and hiding him away for a period of time. And it's got some subtle commentary about the relationship between Brits and Americans in the 1940s. But I'm mainly recommending this <laughs> because it's super tense and fun. Now Shay is uh, wiggling her eyebrows at me. <laughs> <laughs> Do you take offence to the use of the word <laughs> yank? No. <laughs> I was trying to flip the narrative in my mind here. Like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yes. <laughs> uh, we're going to move on with the hidden room. I highly recommend it. Time for extra features. Extra features? <laughs> no, don't worry, Dan. We're not going to do the extra features tune. That's uh, something we only do when, when you're around. Yes. Um, but something we do when you're not around is we record a show called VHS Quest. And if you want to hear Shay and I talk more in depth about Psycho 4, we did cover that recently because we have it on tape as well as on disc. And you can hear that over at patreon.com forward slash VHS Quest where you'll get over 200 movie reviews for just $4 a month, and there are four reviews going up every Sunday, just adding to that gigantic archive of tapes. It's a huge stack. The stack of tapes we've <laughs> yeah. covered, yeah. with the stack of tapes we've covered, we could build a small house. Very small house, and I'm looking around the house that we do actually live in, and I can see at least 300 tapes that we haven't covered yet. And there's so many more I think in the I garage, in the 2, basement. <laughs> yeah, there's 2,000. So we're not <laughs> going to be stopping anytime soon. Um, but we are going to stop this episode soon. And before we do that, Shay, how can people follow you on the internet? People can find me through my label, Black Widio, spelled with two Vs. That's Black underscore V-V-I-D-E-O. I'm also on Facebook and I have a Squarespace store. I was also interviewed on the Strange Tapes show recently oh, yeah. on YouTube. The Halloween so, special. Halloween special this year and last year as well. So you can find me there talking about some of my releases, seeing the clips from some of the movies that I've had the pleasure of releasing. And uh, I guess that's it. Oh, I'm on Letterboxd as yes, well. Yes, you are. Yeah. Under Ronnie Spectre, but spelled like the ghost. Spectre. Yes, absolutely. Um, I am also on Letterboxd at Sam Ashurst. Um, I think I got my letterbox before the trend of doing funny names. Um, but yeah, <laughs> at Sam Asher, that's very boring. And I'm also on Instagram, at Sam Asher 23, the number two, the number three. And um, yeah, VHS Quest over at Patreon. I think that's it. Any final thoughts? Yeah, I just want to reiterate that Psycho 3 is genuinely a wonderful movie i think a lot of people overlook it they don't give it the credit it deserves and it's really been a pleasure to talk about it to talk about perkins and the fact that he's really the only horror villain to ever jump into a franchise midway take the the wheel and actually steer it in a really interesting direction and I love this movie and I hope that everyone can find something to love in this movie. 
Sorry, that sounds like... <laughs> no, no, that's lovely. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's been a really great pleasure to talk about it with you tonight. It's been a pleasure to talk to you too. And I'm very, very glad that you've jumped into the Arrow Video podcast franchise um, and doing a film that, you know, Dan and I covered the previous film. And we're also next time going to do uh, a director who Dan and I have covered before. Uh, we talked about Carrie, we've talked about Blowout, and next time we will be talking about Carlito's Way. So incredibly excited to discuss that film with you as well. So uh, until then, precious, precious Arrowheads, thank you so much for listening, and we promise to be more professional next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.